Welcome to the Choral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. Chris Wilmore here, bass singer with the Choral Project, and the sometimes host and executive audio engineer of this awesome podcast. Please make sure to rate, like, love, review, subscribe to, and share the podcast on whatever podcast streaming service you enjoy No Baton Needed. Doing so helps our podcast grow and gain new listeners, so more and more people can tune in to our monthly conversations. In this episode, we speak with Bay Area native Dr. Stephen M. Sano. He's a professor of music, the Harold C. Schmidt Director of Choral Studies, and the Rackford and Carlotta A. Harris University Fellow in Undergraduate Education at Stanford University. He directs the Stanford Chamber Chorale and Stanford Symphonic Chorus, teaches conducting, and offers seminars in the Hawaiian slack key guitar called Kiho Alu and North American Taiko. Here are Daniel and Dr. Sano. Yay, Stephen. Uh, it's great to have you on our podcast. And I haven't talked to you in quite a while. We've corresponded via email a little bit, but um, it's it's wonderful to have you be a guest on this. Um, you, For our listeners, you are a professor and chair of the Department of Music. No, I'm actually stepped down from chairing three years ago. Oh, okay. So updated. But you were, okay, so you were the chair. Yeah, I was for about 10 years. Yeah. And the Harold C. Schmidt Director of Choral Studies at Stanford University, where you direct the Stanford Chamber Choral and the Symphonic Chorus. Right. Um, and uh, what our listeners may not know is that you and I go way back <laughs> Uh, back to 1988 is when I first met you. Um, I was a, You were the staff accompanist at Foothill College. It was just before you went to go get your graduate degrees at Stanford, and I it was my first year at junior college. And uh, I'm sort of indebted to you because you and Gail Birdsong, who was the uh, choral director there, were two people very instrumental in encouraging me to go into choral music and sort of steering me in the right way, very positively, very... Um, warmly and nurturing in a, a nurturing way where it I didn't really realize how much I was going to love what it was that I had done and I wouldn't have gone that direction otherwise but your 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 passion for it was wonderfully evident and colorfully evident uh, even back then in 1988 <clears throat> so not a surprise whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> well thank you I it's so funny when I think back because I don't I didn't really know what I was doing I, and uh, but yeah I was really excited about it for sure um so um, you said it was colorful. My my. So I elaborate a little bit on that. It's um, I'm curious what you mean. Do you know when? Well, I mean, you know how this is when students um, <clears throat> display passion for uh, a field of study or uh, even a specific piece of music. They um, light up in a different way, and their energy radiates in a different way, and their intellectual engagement um, is. Uh, amped up and turned on to a higher degree, and I, all those things are really evident. Uh, and and you had to be if you were just starting uh, community college then, you had to be like eighteen or something. Yeah, it was nineteen. Yeah, yeah. And part of it is like, well, you had just said, um, you know, you didn't even know what you're doing back then. But it's like, do any of us know what we're really doing at eighteen <laughs> years old? Right? I mean, I it took me so. The funny thing was, at that point in time, and that was a year before I went back to grad school, I mean, I was 30 when I went back to grad school, and that's that's the point I decided, yeah, I actually want to pursue music as a profession and as a, as a, a life's goal. Because I left music altogether for many, many years before I even started accompanying at Foothill. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. I knew that you got your undergraduate work with Aiko Nishi, the amazing teacher at San Jose State. And uh, because as a pianist myself, we had a lot of conversations about technique and repertoire. And one of the things that, on a side note, that always marveled me was that you're an avid rock climber. <laughs> you would talk about how you do these finger holds. Um, there's one version of rock climbing where you like basically shove your hands into like grooves and then you, you lock it in place and then you pull up and your hands would just be a mess. Uh, how, oh my gosh, you were so much well, I would come back from weekends me. climbing in Yosemite and my hands would all be black and blue and my, and Miss Onishi would just freak out, you know, say, well, what are you doing to your hands? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that was kind of like a different lifetime ago. Man, my goodness, I haven't, I haven't rock climbed in ages, but I climbed a lot in the 70s and 80s yeah um and yeah that's a finger lock right you put your finger in a in a crack and then you torque torque it sideways so you can uh, pull on it <laughs> gosh, it's my hand is just like going out thinking about that 
So as we're, we're saying, you are an accomplished pianist, but um, you also play quite a bit of other instruments. You're harpsichord, which is sometimes a logical shift, technique's a little different, but but Hawaiian slacky guitar. It's I'm going to see if I pronounce this correctly. Is it kiho'alu? Yeah, kiho'alu. Kiho'alu. Um, and then there's a Japanese percussion instrument, a taiko, taiko drums. Oh, I'm not a taiko player. I, I, it's a, an area of music that fascinates me, um, kind of intellectually and and historically. But I'm not. My wife is a is a taiko player. Oh, and we actually co-teach a seminar on North American taiko at Stanford uh, every spring quarter. But I'm not. I I have played just a tiny bit in the distant past, but I absolutely do not consider myself taiko player. <laughs> I've seen, um, yeah, I, I remember you were connected to taiko teaching in some way, so that that makes sense. Tell um, Just for me, t- tell me a little bit about the uh, kiho alu. Uh, Hawaiian slacky guitar. So <clears throat> um, I had played guitar for a very long time. Uh, when we first met, I had already been playing guitar for, for uh, quite a long time since I was a little kid. And I put it aside uh, for uh, a good number of years. And then when I was actually back in graduate school <clears throat> and I met my wife, I was also a graduate student uh, in linguistics uh, at the time. And uh, her family's from the islands. Her family's from Hawaii. And she grew up there as a kid. And you know how when you um, start dating someone, you start listening to, you start sharing music, right? And uh-huh. listen, figuring out what the other person like. And so she, she um, introduced me to a lot of Hawaiian music. And it's an interesting thing. Born and raised in Palo Alto and Hawaii is close by and uh, it's easy to get to and a uh, huge Japanese American community, of course. But I really didn't have interest. I'm, like, I'm not a water guy, right? So it, like it, 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 beaches, beaches are great, but they're not where I go to first. It was the mountains always right. first, right? Yeah. So um, I never really had any inkling about the, the scope, the whole constellation of Hawaiian music. And so I started listening uh, when I was in graduate school. And I, f- I returned to the guitar as kind of a musical escape. Um, and, uh, and that's when I, and because I was listening to Hawaiian music, I was listening to Slack Key, I started teaching myself. And then, um, I connected with one of the great master players, Ozzy Kotani, and, uh, learned just a, a, such a tremendous amount from him. And then we got engaged to, in a couple of, uh, recording projects together, um, that did really well. So it was a very kind of late in life introduction, right? To, to Hawaiian music and to slack key specifically to Kihualu specifically. Uh, and I, I still, when I played it, like none of my guitars are in standard tuning. They're all in slack tunings. And uh, that's the only kind of guitar outlet I do these days is, is playing in the slacky style. And what, what, how does a slacky guitar differ from a regular guitar in its construction? And it's a, it's a style. Uh, it's a genre of guitar playing. It can be played on any instrument. It can okay. be played on classical or a folk guitar or nylon, steel string, electric. It can be played on any instrument. Okay. It's uh, we call slack key, <clears throat> or the word kiho alu means to loosen the keys, meaning the tuning keys. So it's a it's a set of scordatura tunings, altered tunings. Um, but it's also an entire repertoire that's based, of course, in, in island music. Uh, it has a unique history because the guitar is, of course, an import to Hawaii. It's, it's not indigenous to the islands. Um, and uh, there are a lot of musical constructions um, that are unique to that style. So you put all of that together, and there are connections to uh, extant forms of Hawaiian music, pre, pre-contact forms of Hawaiian music, and the rhythms and such. So you put all that together, and, and that's what has evolved is slack key and and actually along many different trajectories. So it's a it's a pretty diverse form of guitar playing. That's that's fantastic. The entire sort of in general Polynesia has a spectacularly rich, incredible musical legacy that a, a, a lot of Westerners just simply don't know anything about. And you're absolutely right. And uh, I mean, it's a vocal before contact. It really was more than anything else, a vocal tradition absolutely. Right in, in Hawaii. So, yeah. It's a perfect segue uh, to actually talk about Hawaiian choral music, since it's one of your interests. Tell us a little bit about uh, Hawaiian choral music. How is it different than, uh, you know, some of the some of the world music that we would find in other cultures? And 
So uh, again, that's, a, that's a, it's an interesting evolution because in ancient Hawaii, of course, uh, vocal music um, is is the foundation. Chant is the foundation, right? I mean, the Hawaiian language was an oral spoken language. It was not a written language before contact with the West. And so chant was how history was recorded and how family genealogy was kept. And my goodness, the Kumulipo chant, the chant that describes the creation of the Hawaiian Islands is like thousands of lines long. And people would just learn it because that was the history of where you come from. Um, And... After contact, after European contact, especially uh, with the uh, missionaries introducing um, hymns as a tool for Christianization, for example, and the hymnody that they brought, the European musical, I'll use the word language, although that's, it's, it's kind of a just slippery term to use uh, very often when we talk about music, but... Um, vocabulary? Yeah, voca- the harmonic yeah. constructions, yeah. you know, and the, and the way melody is conceived in, in the European tradition. Um, and they brought all that with them. And um, as, as often happens when there's a melding of musical cultures, the local culture took parts from that. And one of those things was the guitar, of course. And... Um, and in Slack Key, they adapted this tuning. And then, of course, there's this kind of acculturated and import, imported and acculturated European music that they start making their own. And part of that is choral music, which has its uh, prominence, of course, uh, as far as cho- actually the way we think of choral music. A lot of the provenance there is in sacred music, is in the hymnody of the church. And it's pretty fascinating to, to trace actually the musical evolution of what that looked like early hymn singing as opposed to a little bit more evolved style, four parts, a little bit more independence of, of choral parts. And then there's the, as happened with a lot of Hawaiian music, there's a secularization of, of those, of that music, right? So we have hymns, what we would, we would hear and go, oh, that's very hymn-like, you know, but then there's a secularization and a popularization of the style. And of course, with all the imported influence of popular styles from here, Tin Pan Alley, Ragtime, Jazz, and then Rock and Roll, and other contemporary styles. And you can, you can trace it pretty, um, pretty precisely and dramatically how something would be popular here. And, oh, look, in just a little while after that, it's popular over there, right? And... Um, so there, there's a, a part of that whole evolution of Western influence in the musics of Hawaii. Part of that is choral music. And, and there is a wonderful choral tradition, a very rich choral tradition, of course, built around language, built around Olelo Hawaii, the native Hawaiian language. Um, and there, in fact, is this there's this incredible phenomenon, <laughs> for lack of, which is actually, it's a great word for it. Every year at Kamehameha schools um, in the, um, the campus in Honolulu, uh, which is a school for really for the education. It was founded by a grant um, from the royalty, and it's for the education of, of children of Hawaiian descent originally. And they have a song contest every year, and the whole upper school, freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors in high school, compete against each other in this event every year. And um, they have, you know, the, the uh, treble choir pieces, they have the men's choir pieces, they have the mixed choir pieces. Uh, pieces are arranged specifically for this event. People, you know, some of the leading musicians in Hawaiian music will arrange uh, pieces for this event. And then they are, they're judged by a panel of experts, music, language, um, for, you know, a, uh, correct diction, appropriate diction, and then all the things that almost any other choral competition you would expect to be judged upon, right? So ensemble and intonation and everything else, rhythmic acuity, and, um, and they all compete against each other. And it's not just the choirs, all right? It's the entire high school. It's the entire upper school. And that's, I mean, that's one of the really unique choral events uh, that's very special. And then while the judges go into deliberation after all the people perform and everything, um, then the kids all put on um, this incredible musical and dramatic performance and usually it's built around a theme. 
for that year, you know, some some theme specific to history or culture. So witnessing that, I remember I was on tour in the islands with a Stanford Chamber Choral, and we were lucky enough to to get like a dozen tickets to this event. And I remember the the kids in the choral were just like jaws on the floor going, and of course this takes place in a in Blaisdell Arena, which is like the big basketball arena. So it's like, you know, 10,000, I don't know what the seating capacity is, but it's like thousands of people and it's completely packed. And all of my students are going, uh, these are high school students. It's just, it's the most jaw-droppingly amazing experience. That is fantastic. Oh, no, I really want to go and see it. Kamehameha School Song Contest. You, I'm, you can look it up online. There's, now there's, you know, you can see it on YouTube. You'll probably see videos, yeah. How wonderful. So um, we have to obviously address the elephant in the world right now, COVID. Prior to COVID, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that specifically, but prior to that, did you conduct a lot of Hawaiian music with your groups? Some. And of course, when we try to tour there every fourth year. And, and because the invitations to travel and stuff don't always come evenly sometimes it goes five or six years between when we're actually able to go there we were supposed to be on tour in hawaii last march and i had to shut down that tour two weeks before departure because of covid and and when we go on tour be it china or japan or the uk or whatever of course we always take a repertoire specific to those areas to honor those choral traditions and so when we go to hawaii we do take a uh, Hawaiian choral repertoire with us. And of that repertoire, is there a favorite piece or two that you have? There is. Um, so there's a couple of interesting things. Do you know, in Hawaii, very often at the end of concerts, sometimes at the end of meetings and sporting events and other big public gatherings, but um, very often there is one song that's sung by everybody and it has its provenance in the hymnody uh, of Hawaii. Um, it's called Hawaii Aloha. And it's, and it's actually a melody that's from um, um, the kind of Anglican spiritual tradition of the Northeast United States. But the text is by a missionary um, who's named Lorenzo Lyons. And, and the, local, uh, the locals called him, with affection, Layana. And... Uh, Hawaii Aloha is kind of like a, a second anthem, almost. I, it, like, everyone knows it. Like, everyone in the island knows it. And at the end of a concert, they will all stand and they will all sing, right? So because of its kind of, its place in Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian musical culture, that's a really, and everyone holds hands when they sing it. And like, the whole entire auditorium will stand and hold hands singing it. So... You know, to to teach the students here, look, this is a cultural artifact of just tremendous importance. And it talks about the aina, it talks about the land. And of course, when you when you grow up on an island, and I, I grew up here in Palo Alto, so I, you know, totally didn't grow up on an island, but your concept of land is really different when you're surrounded by the vastness of the ocean. Uh, and even that, that's a weird, you know, we think of the ocean as vast. Native Hawaiians, that like the oceans are their highways, right, in ancient times. Hawaii sits at the top of the Polynesian Triangle. That triangle covers more surface area than like North America and Europe combined. And because of that, Polynesian people cover a greater portion of the Earth's surface than any other people in the world. Of course, it's mostly water, but to get from one point to another you they really there's this mindset of thinking of it right as as a highway but um anyway uh, it it speaks of the land this this uh song does and i think that's a really important mindset to for our students to understand the other piece that's really moving to me in in a, a dramatic way do you know the last reigning monarch of hawaii queen lilio kalani because the history, right, it was a sovereign nation. It was overthrown by the U.S. government, uh, U.S. military, backed by the government. It was an illegal overthrow. Um, president Bill Clinton actually issued the formal apology to the Native Hawaiian people when he was president 100 years after the overthrow, 1993. The overthrow was in 1893. And the queen, the last reigning monarch, was a wonderful songwriter. She wrote over 160 songs that we know of. 
And uh, of course, several months after the overthrow, she was imprisoned in her own residence in Iolani Palace, the only palace, uh, royal palace in the United States. And um, she wrote a song there called Ku'upui Paukalani, My Flower at Paukalani. Paukalani is one of the royal gardens. And every day, even when she was in prison, she would get flowers from one of her gardens. Most of the time they came from this garden up in Pao Valley, which is near Punchbowl Cemetery in, in modern Honolulu. <clears throat> but on this one day, she was brought flowers from Palkalani, which is uh, down near um, kind of the Diamond Head end of, of Waikiki, before it was Waikiki, before it was what it is now, right? And while she was in prison, she wasn't allowed contact with her people. She wasn't allowed to know what was going on in her kingdom. But this morning, the, on this one particular morning, the flowers came wrapped in the morning paper, and she actually could learn what was going on. And that, that was a very different thing. She wrote this amazing view, and the song has a gorgeous melody, and it's so poignant when you think of the story behind it. And she wrote it in the room in which she was imprisoned. And I have to say, one of the most moving choral experiences ever was being in Hawaii with the Chamber Chorale and singing that song in the imprisonment room where it was written. And, you know, it's just, we'd say chicken skin, right, in the islands. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, goosebumps. So that song is special. I, I'm, I'm talking a lot about all this Hawaiian music, but I also want our listeners to know that that, that isn't the only thing you do, Coralia. You're very skilled. It's a very tiny um, part of what we yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, he, his repertoire is, is very rounded and complete. Uh, so on that note, because you began with a keyboard you know, path. How did you actually get drawn to choral music? I, I remember talking to you in the the some of our first conversations about repertoire. Your affinity for English choral music, for example, was was quite high, and it and it still is. So how how are you steered in that direction? My life in choral music started in third grade, and I started singing in a in a church boys choir that was modeled after the the British boys choir tradition and um and it was in a presbyterian church here in palo alto but the music director organist at the time it had this affinity for for this repertoire and this style and so i learned singing bird motets from the time i was in third grade and um and all the music that developed since then so it was it was bird and it was talus and bird and purcell and of course um von williams and herbert howells and everything since then so that's kind of my choral wheelhouse or my choral home in a way and i still do a lot of that repertoire um these days and well, these days I'm not doing much of anything because of COVID, but in a normal world, I would be doing a lot of it. And uh, just as we try to go to Hawaii every fourth year, we tour in the UK every fourth year. That's wonderful. Well, and of course, you being at Stanford, what a spectacular space in which to sing a lot of those motets. Those English motets are just... Uh, it just yeah, Mem- <laughs> Memchu, Memorial Church, Stanford Memorial Church, is, is, that's a very special building. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. So was music always going to be your trajectory or did you ever consider something else? No, I, well, like I was saying, I left music altogether for almost 10 years. I mean, I grew up playing piano and started studying piano when I was five years old. <clears throat> and when I went to college, I didn't actually <laughs> didn't make a real conscious decision that that's what I was going to do is become a, a piano performance music major, um, which is what I ended up doing. I just kind of did it because it seemed like it was the right thing to do because I was, you know, I was okay at playing piano. It, it came fairly quickly and everything, but I, I never actually had a real passion. It wasn't like I couldn't live without it or, you know, like right now I would find it really hard if you told me you can't live without conducting Brahms. I, like I just... I would have a very hard time with that, right? I was never like that about piano. And when I finished my undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I sure didn't want to go into graduate school right away and sit in a practice room for six hours a day, you know, doing just solo piano. And my other huge passion, and we we just we mentioned it earlier, was uh, the mountains, right? Was rock climbing and mountaineering. And so uh, I went to work for a company that made high-end mountaineering gear. and 
the R&D department would throw us these samples and say every other week and say, hey, go test this. You know, <laughs> so I was up in the Sierras all the time, all year round, ski mountaineering, rock climbing, backpacking. And um, I almost bought and uh, opened, was going to open my own shop actually here in Palo Alto. And um, it didn't happen for a lot of reasons. And so after about eight years in the industry, which, in, which was a great time that I wouldn't give up for anything, I learned how to manage, and I, because I became purchasing director for this company, and I learned how to manage people and manage project and create and run to a budget and all stuff that served me really well as chair of the music department at Stanford. But after that, I was thinking, huh, Maybe I can fold together this business experience and music. And so uh, I got into arts management and I was uh, executive director for Peninsula Symphony for four seasons, which was really also a terrific way to expand my chops and kind of administrative um, skills. But the best thing that came out of it was that every Tuesday night, you probably know Maestro Mitchell Sardu Klein, you know, wonderful, wonderful conductor and mentor for me. At the best part about the job is every Tuesday night I would go to rehearsal, and after I set up the chairs and put out the music and everything, I just sit there with my scores and watch him conduct. And I learned so much repertoire in those four seasons. And I would sit and watch him and think to myself, huh, yeah, I could be doing that. You know, and I actually made a conscious decision, probably the first really conscious decision of import um, regarding career in my life that I was going to go back to grad school because I, I wanted to be able to do that in a university setting, in an educational setting. So that's and then when I played at Stanford to do my DMA, that was the only school I applied to because of other family commitments at the time and not wanting to move and everything. And it just happened to all work out. It was wonderful. And of course, you got to study with the wonderful William Ramsey, who's so terrific. Did, did music run in your family? Um, not particularly. My mom um, played piano and my dad is... It, absolutely not a musician anyway he used to play harmonica kind of and at church singing hymns he'd kind of harmonize a third above or a sixth below you know kind of thing but um no formal training whatsoever so no not really i just started yamaha music school at five years old when it first started in this country yeah i remember that actually and all the talk and chatter about that yeah so it this a bit of a pivot, but related to family and and the Bay Area and whatnot. Um, moving to a political topic, that's something that was tragic and horrible. The um, it's sort of timely the the attacks that are happening um, on senior Asian Americans in the Bay Area, and of course this tragic correlation between what happened when the internment camps were going on and the timing of those two things is interesting. I w- was wondering if you could share some of your, your thoughts or experiences around this. Yeah. And of course, uh, February 19th uh, was is the day of remembrance for the right. signing of Executive Order 9066, which allowed the military to define exclusion zones. And of course, uh, Japanese Americans were removed from those zones, including my dad's family. My dad was actually in Japan at the time. Um, he he went. To, he was adopted by his uncle in Japan because they had no sons. So this was a traditional thing to do. So to carry on the family name, they just adopt a relative or a friend's yeah. son, right? So he was adopted by his uncle. So he was in Japan, but the rest of his family was here. Uh, they were in Imperial Valley in Southern California. That's where my dad was born. And after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, um, the FBI showed up at at. Uh, at grandpa and grandma's house and grandpa was out in the fields and said, we need to talk to Mr. Sano. And, um, my grandma in her almost non-existent English <laughs> conveyed that he was out in the fields and he would be back at dinner time at the end of the day. And so they just, these two FBI agents just waited in the house. And when grandpa came home, they said, Mr. Sano, you have a son in the army in Japan in the Japanese military. And my dad, my grandfather and his, even less English, <laughs> said basically says, no, I don't have a son. I uh, In Japan, in the military, I have a son, but he's in high school. Oh, well, well, we have pictures. 
And they showed him a picture of my dad wearing a school uniform, which looks like a military uniform. Just all the boys in high school wear these, right? Dark blue, high collar, gold buttons, cap, you know, kind of thing. And my grandpa had to laugh and say, well, that's a high school uniform. All the boys wear those. But because my grandfather was a uh, considered a leader in the community because he helped organize the picnic on the emperor's birthday called Tencho Setsu at the time. He was arrested and he was taken to uh, Bismarck, North Dakota to a Department of Justice camp for a year. Uh, oh and in the interim, the rest of his family was, was um, incarcerated at Poston, Arizona. And then he, he was relocated down to Poston with the rest of his family after a year. And I look at that and what happened at that time, and you would think that separating families and um, incarcerating them illegally, you would think we would have moved beyond that. You would hope, one would hope that we had moved beyond that. And we look at what's transpired over the past few years and see that, well, that's actually not the case. And and as you mentioned, here are elderly Asian Americans um, in Oakland who are being subject to behavior that's kind of the same as it has, you know, as it has been in, in this country's past to other groups of people. And it's, it's really, it's angering and frustrating and tragic that we still confront these kinds of issues and experiences. I often feel like, you know, it's like Sisyphus with the boulder and we make progress and we go back down and we make progress and have you personally experienced any discrimination in the um, in your musical career in the choral community? Never. I, so this is a, my wife and I were actually just talking about this the other day, or I'm completely blind to it. But no, I never have. I don't think I can think of any instance where an opportunity was withheld from me or not made available, or. I've never not been able to do pretty much anything I've wanted to do in the musical world. And sometimes, for a very long time, I'd say even before I went to graduate school, for the most part, it's not that I pursued things with any particular vigor <laughs> when it came to music. I just It was kind of like, oh, that's the next step. It's just what's going to happen. But I never felt that growing up. I never really felt that. I grew up here in Palo Alto, and at the time I was a kid, it was 2% Asian American. Two percent, and most of that was Japanese American, right? And now Japanese Americans are the smallest Asian community, Asian American community, because there's no recent in-migration to speak mm. of, like there has been from right. China or Taiwan or um, uh, Philippines or or Korea or so many other places. <clears throat> um, and despite that, I mean. You know, my nickname when I was in sixth grade was SURF, which is an acronym S-E-R-F for Steve Eats Raw Fish, because like no <laughs> one ate sushi at the time. Everyone thought that was just the weirdest thing in the world that I would eat raw fish. And that's like, that's the extent of it. But it was, and yeah, I suppose that's, that is when you deconstruct it uh, on many different levels, that is a race, that's, that's a, a, a gesture that's founded in kind of in race and ethnicity and food in this case because of that but i it was never done i never experienced this as a, as a mocking or you know in mean-spirited way yeah and certainly as taunts go it's fairly mild <laughs> it's and it's fairly yeah. mild yeah right and uh and i and and since i decided to dedicate really my professional life to music I've never experienced that. And I, you know, when I was job hunting, when I was finishing my degree, I went and I, I interviewed for jobs in Indiana and, you know, in the Midwest and uh, back East. And, and I never felt, I, I would go to the mall and I would people watch and I would think to myself, wow, I am the only one in this entire shopping mall that looks like me, you know, but did I ever feel that way when in the interview process or in working with the students or in work, you know, connecting with the faculty in those places? Never did. And then I was lucky enough, you know, to be a graduate student at Stanford and then to actually land the position here at the end of all that. And um, I never have. 
like I said earlier, I'd, I've never not been able to do the things I've wanted to do, which is weird. And I, I, that's not been the experience of friends and family necessarily. But Sometimes people can just navigate the world and it, things just seem to miss them. And, and, and then sadly, some other people just always seem to be in the line of fire. But it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's lovely that you were, you were able to make it through and also be fairly philosophical about it, where you could, like you made the comment about, I'm looking at them all and I don't really see anyone that looks like me, but it also wasn't a terrifying thing. It just no, is a it, was, thing. it was more like a curiosity. It's almost like when I was in seventh grade and I walked into Japanese language class and the room was full of Japanese American kids. I walked in thinking, wow. Do I look like that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was a completely different experience because 2% Asian American, you know, I didn't see kids that looked like me growing up. So stepping back now into your role as a choral director and making music and looking back at the past trajectory, you know, in reverse to when you first started to now, how do you feel the world of choral music has changed from when you started to where you are now? It has and it hasn't. I guess it depends on if one wants to really look at it holistically or look at it in silos. And it's very easy to look at it in silos just because um, I, I love music in the British choral tradition. So there's a silo right there, mm -hmm. right? Um, or the choral tradition from Hawaii, there's another silo right there. So if I look at it in silos and I think of... Um, choral musics that are influenced, impacted, modeled after, reflect different um, traditions, different vocal traditions around the world. I would have to say that, well, now there's, there's a lot uh, more ubiquitous awareness of what's out there than there was, say, 30 years ago. Not that what's out there and easily accessible is necessarily of good quality. I think it's become, um, you know, world music, world choral music has become a niche in a way. Um, it's a marketing niche. It's a commercial niche. And some of what's out there, I look at it and it's like, well, does this person actually know like the Hawaiian language? And why is it set the way it is? Because this is not an idiomatic way to do this. You know, it's like that kind of thing, right? So in that respect, there's a there's a plus there's pluses and minuses, uh, I think. Holistically, if we think of goals and um do you know, it's, it's almost like uh, the last time I saw Moses Hogan, which was not very long before he passed away, all, all too young, and, and he was working with the chorale, and he said, yeah, you know, you just, and, and he was working on one of his arrangements, he gave us a list of like three or four of his, his own, somewhere, a couple of arrangements and a couple of pieces he wrote, and uh, okay, when you look at this, you just need to think of doing this like Mozart. And so you, he would talk about metrical acuity, and he would talk about intonation, and he'd talk about unifying your vowels, and he'd talk about, you know, of all those things that you just, you just do, that we all as choral musicians, we just do that, those kind of things. And here is a very uniquely American genre of choral music that has a wonderful history that's born of tragedy. And, you know, whenever we do those pieces, yes, it's super important to know about the Fisk Jubilee singers and, and where the concerted spiritual came from and the use of language. And, uh, and you can look at that from the linguistic point of like the theoretical linguistics point, social linguistics point of view, or you can look at that from a singer's diction point of view and et cetera, et cetera. But the end goal is to experience and produce this piece of music in a way that is dedicated and thoughtful and musical, whatever that may mean, and to the best of your abilities. And that best of abilities thing is a weird thing because that's not necessarily the goal of everyone when you engage with music, right? There may be many more important things than doing to the best of your abilities. But in that holistic view, there's so much that's shared irrespective of provenance and genre. And so in that way, I, I don't think things initially shifted all that much. But I think just in um, choral musicians, choral practitioners, 
views of the choral world, I think it's just expanded, which is a wonderful thing, right? And, and oh my God, it's so different than when I was a third grader learning, you know, Talus and Bird. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, I'm going to loop back to COVID now as a follow-up. Um, how has it affected your music making? And then by extension, how is Stanford's music department navigating COVID right now? I, I am so done with COVID. I just, yeah, <laughs> like, the here, whole, here. like the whole world, right? Stanford, first of all, um, it was explained to me this way. If the state says yes and the county says no, Stanford will say no. If the state says no and the county says yes, Stanford will still say no. If the state says yes and the county says yes, Stanford will say maybe. <laughs> Stanford is more conservative in its COVID mitigation policies than either the state or the county. And, mm. I, and I think that's a, a, actually a wonderful way to approach it. Um, the health and safety of students and staff and faculty are the driver for everything. As a result, while I watch my colleagues rehearsing their groups this entire academic year, some indoors, you know, masked maybe, but indoors, um, and some outdoors, we haven't had any core rehearsals at all. They're not allowed on campus at all. Um, we're hoping that with a return to the red or the orange tier, by the time spring quarter begins, which is the beginning of end of March, beginning of April, we'll be able to start rehearsing small groups outdoors, masked, distanced, and for limited periods of time. But my chamber corral will not rehearse indoor the rest of this academic year. Right? And my symphonic chorus, which is over 200 people, uh, there's not a room big enough, uh, short of Maple's basketball pavilion, there's not a room big enough on campus, actually, where we can rehearse safely or effectively. And, and so you so haven't you done, haven't any, done any, virtual any virtual rehearsing? rehearsing. So the, my chamber choral meets once a week, uh, and we have met once a week all through last spring and through the last fall, and, we're, and this quarter we are too still. And we're engaged with a, uh, right now, a current project. We're engaged with um, ECHO. Do you know it's the mixed uh, youth chamber choir from the Piedmont Children's Chorus Organization? A wonderful group, really fabulous group. Um, and, and terrifically trained. That's conducted by Eric Twan, who's a, a Stanford alum. And um, he commissioned a piece from UK composer Carrie Andrew that the text all comes from young climate change activists. And so we're doing a collaborative project with them. It's going to be a distributed video kind of thing, right? <clears throat> so we're, we're doing that right now. And, and that's also been a great opportunity to connect with a community organization outside of Stanford. And to let those kids in high school and all our kids from Stanford mingle online and just get to know each other and they can ask questions with no topic out of bounds of our students. And uh, so it's an, ex it's an exchange in, in a really wonderful way. So we're doing that. I have guests come in uh, every week. Uh, Eric Whitaker came in last week and Kristen came in the week before that and Craig Jessup was in last fall and um, so people in the music world just talking about their experience in music and what drives them as a choral musician or a composer or whatever and mostly it's a lot of Q&A actually um, but just to expose the students to all these different worlds uh, of music which is, is actually quite a luxury that we just don't usually have time for and, you know, when you can engage these folks about what drives them as a musician, that's a really special opportunity, right? So, so we're doing that every week also. Well, uh, we, we have uh, folks set up on Jack Trip, so we can do real-time music right. making. Um, we do it more as just a tool for, for providing another arrow in the quiver of seeing together in some way some form or fashion. We're not doing it as a, okay, we're going to do a concert live on Jack Trip kind of thing. How has that worked for you? Uh, it works amazingly well. Uh, there's some kind of technical ramp up, you know, to getting, getting people on board with it. But see, last week or the week before, we had 15 people on at the same time. One was in Santa Monica. One was in Flagstaff, Arizona. And even that far away, there wasn't a latency problem. Um, and... 
it was really heartening to see, even after we were done with fall quarter, right before the holidays, the students kept just getting on it themselves and singing Christmas carols together, right? <laughs> because, wow, here's an opportunity to actually make music together. And the very first time that we sang together on it, last this was back last fall, after not singing together for months and months and months, it's pretty emotional, right, to be able to connect like that. But it's, yeah, to me, it's for, and, and you, because there's no video component, you do run video on Jitsi or Zoom or whatever. So it's behind, right? So there's no conducting. So you just count in rather than visually cue. Yeah, which I have to say is if you look at it as a tool for building your inner timekeeping clock, it's a great tool for that, right? Because, of course, everything just slows down and slows down. Slows down, right? And if it's a slow piece already, it's like, oh my god, this is never gonna. This piece, this phrase, is never gonna end. Um, so, in in actually encouraging people to really hone their internal clock, it's actually a really good tool. That's good. So, you you lost in some respects. I, I think the the anyone in the performing arts community, um, but can agree with this but it's interesting to see how even though you've lost in some areas you've enriched in other areas it's afforded you an opportunity to do some things with your students that you wouldn't normally be able to do normally be able to do yeah Yeah, exactly which is which is great and all that said we just want to sing together in real time in person i understand yeah and the virtual process can be challenging because if you're trying to create content, especially for presentation and you're doing your solo video, the process actually reinforces the, your sense of disconnectivity rather than interconnectivity. And of course, ensemble music making is all about interconnectivity. So it's been a challenge. Yeah, it's an excellent point you make. And that, yeah, and we miss so- it. <laughs> So before I head into it, we have a, a set of final questions that we usually um, sort of ask. I have two things I wanted to um, ask you. First, if our listeners want to know more about the Slacky guitar, um, you have a few recordings that feature the instrument. Um, what are the album names and where could they find them? Are they able to purchase them digitally somewhere? I, that's a good question. I think they're on uh, Apple Music. <laughs> I haven't even actually checked recently. So... I have two albums out right now. I, I've done four. A couple of them are out of print. But um, there's one called Songs from the Tarot Patch. And there's one called Pu'ukani. I think they're both on Apple Music. They're also orderable from uh, Daniel Ho Creations. Because he's, he's a producer and he's the recording engineer mastermind. I, the guy's mm. golden ears. I, just amazing. And he's coming to talk to the Corral this coming Thursday night. Oh, good. And he also has done, the, he also has done all the post-production engineering for the Corral's last three CDs. The other question is, uh, this podcast is um, affectionately, playfully nicknamed uh, No Baton Needed. So I ask every conductor their philosophy on when to use it, when not to use it. Just Oh, actually, sort of you mean... The actually actual physical <laughs> baton versus your hands, and yeah. <laughs> um, I use, uh, with my chamber corral, which is 24 singers, uh, I, I never use a baton unless it's, there's an orchestra with it. And that's more just convention and convenience, so that um, because they're further away, because orchestras are very used to seeing baton. And with my symphonic chorus, I use it all the time. Because you've got 200 people and they're far away from you and they're way off to the side of you and just like every tool possible to actually be visible and acute with gesture. And the other time that I use it a lot is teaching, teaching, conducting, because, of course, the baton focuses everything down to a point. And so it's a great way to keep check on bad habits and lack of clarity and such. Yeah. So we always conclude our interviews with sort of a rapid fire set of questions. And this season's questions are a set of would you rather questions um, that we custom make them for every guest. So um, if you had to live away from people for the rest of your life, would you rather be on a mountain or an island? I think I know the answer to this. Well, that's an interesting one. Actually, I would rather be on a mountain. Yeah, Despite my connections to Hawaii, Hawaii and Hawaiian music, I would rather be on a mountain. Would you rather understand any language or have the ability to play any instrument? Actually, I'd rather have the ability to at language because it's such deficiency for me. 
Would you rather have a 99% chance of winning $100,000 or a 50-50 chance of winning $100 million? Oh, does money really even have to come into this at all? You know, I, when I saw that question, I said, I bet Steve's going to say something like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Can that be my answer? Because Sure, it's fine. I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I will buy a lottery ticket, you know, when it gets up to $900 million or whatever, but more for just the fun of being part of something, not because there's any chance of actually winning. So I, I wouldn't, it doesn't, it doesn't track it doesn't in matter. my brain. Yeah. Would you rather only eat tacos for a year or eat pancakes for a year with toppings and fillings being limitless? Oh, tacos. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and lastly, would you rather always be slightly overdressed or always be slightly underdressed? Well, I usually wear Aloha shirts. So that can, you can look, you can take that either way because that that can be a nice Aloha shirt and black slacks. That's formal in Hawaii, right? But here, they're the most comfortable thing to conduct in. So I wear Aloha shirts all the time. <laughs> so you're sort of your 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 answer actually covers both bases in a way. I guess. <laughs> well, Steve, thank you for. Um, spending this hour with us and it's wonderful to catch up with you and talk with you and it i i have a lot of affinity for you in my heart because of how you sort of kicked me onto the path in a very you know mentally way and now i'm able to do what i do because of your guidance and oh well i that's very very kind of you to say i think that i think that that all comes from you daniel and your your work with the project and um, as, as a conductor, uh, is, has been really a joy to see, um, and the, and what you've been able to achieve, I just think just is fabulous. So hats off to you, snaps. Right? Well, my thank students you. like to do snaps. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. Remember to follow The Coral Project on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and SoundCloud. And if you're interested in learning about ways to sponsor the podcast, email us at podcast at coralproject.com. See you next month. <laughs>